Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I'm Hemant Mehta, and I'm flying solo today, and you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. And by the way, we now have merchandise shop on the website, so if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Jeffrey Taylor is the author of several books all about different parts of the world, but you may know him best for his wonderful articles defending atheism and atheists and criticizing the religious right on Salon.com. He's also the Russia correspondent for The Atlantic. His latest book is called Topless Jihadis, Inside Femin, the World's Most Provocative Activist Group. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get this salon thing out of the way right now. The website seems to have this reputation for publishing so many anti-atheist articles, and it seems like all you have to do to get published there is write something that says, like, oh, Sam Harris is an asshole, and they'll print it, it seems like. And you're, like, the one glowing exception to that rule. So what's the relationship between you and Salon? What goes on behind the scenes there? Why do they publish so many of those articles? Well, I, I don't know why they don't publish more articles along the lines of what I've been publishing, but I started writing for them um, actually back in the 90s and uh, and maintained something of a relationship with them uh, during those years. Uh, but I, I began writing about religion for Salon after, um, in response to a takedown of Richard Dawkins, as I recall. This was a few years ago. Um, and basically what I see is that very few people offer the perspective that I've been offering. Um, and that uh, and to me, that seems to be the answer. I don't have any answer for why that is, except that there's still such a longstanding prejudice against um, speaking forthrightly about religion because people take that as, a, as offensive. Um, and I also think that uh, part of the reason there's there are fewer articles um, similar to the ones I write is because the the, um, the fierce uh, antagonism and hate mail and hate tweets that ensue after almost each of my my articles are, are, are I think pretty common. So. There's a lot of disincentive out there to not write about religion. What is the feedback you get to those articles? Is it overwhelmingly positive from commenters and people tweeting, sending you emails, or do you get a lot of backlash for them? 
No, no, no. As I, as I just said, it's mostly negative. Um, I mean, I have people who are recognizing the truth of what I'm saying or, or defending me, but um, I, I think they're becoming more, honestly. I, I'm not exactly sure if I can quantify that, but um, for the most part, the, the reactions are, are are depressing for, for a rationalist <laughs> um, because what I'm, I'm dealing with, I'm writing to mostly an American audience and seeing the amount of hate thrown my way uh, could make me despair, except that the numbers show that um, the religiously non-affiliated are increasing in number, not decreasing. And so I take it as being more an outlash, uh, a, a, a slap back at um, from people who are losing rather than from people who are on the winning side and therefore could be more confident and ignore any kind of attacks on their religion. So when you write about these articles or you're criticizing the religious right, yes, the demographics are changing. Does it ever occur to you, like, why is it so hard to convince people that, you know, atheists aren't trying to force atheism down your throat or that, you know, the religious right is actually bad for a lot of people who would will go on to, to support them? Do you ever wonder, like, why do you why is it so hard to convince people of what seems to be so obvious? Um, I don't know. I, I think that for part of the reason that I just stated that people are afraid to criticize religion, a lot of people grow up just believing that um, expressions of religious faith cannot be touched in any way, cannot be critiqued or criticized in any way. And and so they 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 go on in a bubble of sorts. But it's a bubble that it, you know that obviously absorbs most Americans and most people across the globe. Most uh, it's it's nowhere easy or acceptable necessarily to to criticize religion. Um, but religion, we should remember, it is just one more idea, a bad idea, um, one more explanation of who we are and how we got here, and it's the wrong explanation. So it has to be critiqued, and the more people point that out, the better for us all. Now, you said you started writing for Salon at least, you know, a few years ago with regards to all of this religion stuff, even if you wrote for them before. But you made your reputation as a travel writer, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been I've been living abroad most of my adult life. So uh, when I started writing, I actually I've written seven books now, and six of them are on um, uh, are related to travel and history and, and culture, places that I've spent time in. Um, but for me, religion has always been an important issue, both because of uh, the way it's affected my my family, and also because traveling and living in Muslim countries, for instance or in very Christian places, um, religion would come up as a, as a matter of conversation. And, and I got a heavy indoctrination, both of um, evangelical Christianity at one point in my life, and I spent, uh, I was in the Peace Corps in Morocco, so um, I saw um, life in Muslim countries firsthand, not just in Morocco, but I've been all over the place in the Muslim world. Um, so the travel and, and life experiences has helped shape my views on religion. Have you been anywhere where your atheism has put you at risk at all? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I suppose now <laughs> it certainly would. I mean, I did a, a book, maybe it was my third or my fourth, I can't remember which, called Angry Wind, and I traveled across the Sahel, which is Muslim Black Africa, from 
from Chad to Senegal, and that's through now Boko Haram territory. But um, and I did that in 2003 or four. Um, can't quite remember, but basically that was right after September 11th, and it was clear in in Nigeria that. Uh, that something like Boko Haram, which was being born around that time, but I didn't know about it, um, could take place because there was so much uh, hostility between Muslims and Christians in the north where I was for that trip. Uh, so if I had professed myself an atheist then to the people who I was talking with, I, I think it would have been unpleasant, nothing more. But um, you know, now, obviously, it could, I imagine it could be life-threatening. Do you hide the fact that you're an atheist now when you travel? No, no. But I, I just, I, I find it strange. Uh, I was in Morocco uh, a couple of months ago for a couple of weeks, and I found it really notable that no one brought up religion. Um, this is in contrast to when I was living there in the 80s and early 90s, um, when everybody was talking about religion and people were very aggressive about trying to persuade non-Muslims to uh, except Islam, and I noticed that no one did this time, and I, and I wonder, but I have no proof of it, that maybe the Moroccan security services are monitoring people and people are afraid of being mistaken for Islamists of some sort. I don't know. But um, otherwise, I've been to Turkey recently, and no one brought it up there either, although um, Islam is certainly resurgent, at least now, you know, in the, from the, in the government of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. So let's talk about your traveling for a bit, because you don't go to places, like you said, you're traveling through the, the Muslim part of Africa. You're not exactly going to tourist spots here. What's the fascination with going to places that are well off, you know, well off the popular path? You're going on the obscure, maybe dangerous uh, places. What's drawing you to all that? Well, I, I, I've been, uh, you know, you might know I've been living in Russia for the past 23 years, and I, I was a Russophile as a teen, and I was always interested in going places that, um, not necessarily going places, I was always interested in in peoples with, with whom we had conflicts. Um, in, in, it happens to be that those were, at the time, the Soviet Union and uh, communist countries of Eastern Europe and and uh, Muslim countries, although the conflict in, the, in those years was much, much less pronounced than it is now. Um, and so that fascinated me, and I wanted to know why. Um, but I do go to, I mean, if you could call them tourist places, and I, I spend part of the year in France usually and, and go to Italy often, and I've studied in Italy and Spain. And and, uh, and it's not a, really a question for me of trying to go someplace remote. It's a question of pursuing my interests wherever they happen to be, even if it's in a, even if they're in a dangerous country or a remote country. And what are your interests now when it comes to traveling? Is it just well, going to some place we're in conflict with, or is it something else? I'm sorry? Is it simply going thing, but... to different nations that we're in conflict with, or is there something else drawing you to those particular places? Well, it depends on what I'm writing about. So if I, if I have, I did a story for National Geographic uh, last, you know, the year before last on the refugee flows coming across the Mediterranean into Libya. Um, so I went down to Sicily and went to Lampedusa, the island that's very close to North Africa, where a lot of them at one time were arriving, but no longer. Um, that took me there. Uh, I mean, it really depends on, on what I'm interested in doing. I, 
there isn't, I don't have any, any general approach. If something comes up, I generally try to go places where I speak the language. Uh, in fact, that's pretty much the only sort of place I deal with because I'm not, um, I don't work with translators. I always go and hear things in my, hear what people tell me in their own language, which, which I haven't just studied since I speak several languages. Um, and that's important to me for authenticity's sake. Um, but I'm, I'm usually following themes for a long, long time. And now that I, I've spent so many years of my, of my life writing, um, so basically I wouldn't say that I, I, I have any plan. I just, if, uh, a few years ago, there was a mayor in Southern Spain who, um, Spain was extremely hard hit by the financial crisis there, as you know, I think. And there was a mayor who was a leftist who was organizing raids on supermarkets um because people were hungry in in the southern province where he where he lives that was interesting to me so i went there and did a story for business week on that for instance i i covered henrique caprilis's campaign against hugo chavez for business week um a couple of years ago before chavez died uh all these things came up as a result of well, things i've been reading about and, uh, and i spoke to my editors and they sent me off to do stories so let me get back to some of the things you've been writing about then for Salon recently. When it comes to the new atheists, uh, Bill Maher, Richard Dawkins, or at least the popular atheists, what do you think it is that the general public doesn't get about them? Because they, they get this such a negative reaction when you bring up their names in certain circles. What do you think most people don't know about them or don't get about them? Now, I don't think that there's a question of not getting. I think it's in fact that people get it quite clearly that they're as I as I was saying that people feel they're on the losing side of an argument, and they're lashing out at those who who point this out. I, I don't understand some of the animosity, especially towards Sam Harris, for instance. I think it's irrational and it's been promoted in a way that's physically dangerous for him even. But um, in the case of the others. Um, I think the, the the gist of it is that well, Sam Harris is very good at logically, rationally, and calmly pointing out the foibles of uh, of the religious, in, in most notoriously, of course, uh, of Muslims, but and, and with the jihad violence and whatnot through his podcast. But I think people understand that. I think they they see that he's right, and rather than engage him in particular with Sam Harris um, on the merits of his arguments, they just prefer to attack. Um, so I think, I think believers feel themselves besieged and, and they know that they, they really do, I think in some sense, have some kind of doubt. And rather than deal with a doubt, which would mean that maybe they're doing the wrong thing once a week, you know, if they go to the church on Sundays or go to the mosque several times a day, um, rather than deal with that, they they lash out, and we have this idea that that certain beliefs, religious beliefs, can't be criticized, and people take advantage of that. So if you criticize a religious idea, which is nothing more than a, a bad idea, a mistaken, misinformed idea, people say, well, that's bigoted. But in fact, what you're doing is just engaging in free speech, which is which is what we need. And flipping to the other side of that, what do you think will be the impact of religion on the current uh, American elections? Uh, well, I think it's very strong right now, of course. So you have Donald Trump uh, 
as you know, probably, he spoke recently at Liberty University, which was Jerry Falwell's uh, university, if you could call it that. I mean, uh, but in any case, Donald, even Donald Trump, who clearly uh, I don't believe believes in anything uh, religious at all, but he's trying to get the evangelical vote, and it's working. So he he made it. Uh, he, he delivered a speech in which he basically said about five words about. Uh, God in the Bible, and then went on to do his usual stump speech. But the the point is, people that I, I'm not I'm not at all sure that all the students at Liberty University are are avid believers. I, I don't know exactly what the story is there, but what is clear is that he knew he had to say a few things religious to get their support, and he seemed to get it. And he's done this before, and he's now leading, or he has been leading Ted Cruz among the evangelicals. Um, and this is only because he's made some very obvious panderings to to believers without demonstrating it in any way in his life that he believes. Uh, I, I don't think that Trump really my, – my impression is that he did not give religion much thought. It right. just it, it would just not enter into the life of a billionaire real estate mogul you know, living in New York very much. As we're talking, there was a survey that came out. Uh, the day we're taping this, that actually said when it comes to most Americans uh, thinking about political candidates, Donald Trump is actually seen as the least religious candidate, even less religious than Bernie Sanders. And yet he's the one who seems to have evangelicals eating out of his hands. So what do you think is going on there in terms of, you know, you have so many Republican candidates saying the right things to the evangelical base, Ted Cruz, Ben Carson at a time, Mike Huckabee for sure. And yet evangelicals are flocking to a guy like Trump who screws up when he tries to pander to them. And like you said, I think he gives off this impression that he really isn't religious. He doesn't really care about it. Why are they so drawn to him as opposed to these other candidates? Well, my my guess uh, would be that people are angry, uh, and a lot of people are angry in the United States, and especially the the evangelical group that constantly feels besieged and constantly complains about being under attack, and that Trump uh, expresses that anger pretty accurately. And I think we have to take that anger seriously. I don't think it's crazy. I think it's a result of mostly as a result of economic policies that go back to the to the Clinton years, I mean, to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and, and other things which have left people without futures, closed, jo- uh, closed factories around the country, shifted factories and other production abroad, and leaving a lot of people, um, especially those without any education or with less education, um, and very often white people, very often evangelicals, without much of a future. And, and Donald Trump speaks to that. And I, I think we have to – and I think that's why Bernie Sanders is also doing so well now, um, or at least at the time we're recording this. Um, and I think that he get, that all he has to do is make some sort of pro forma declaration that he – you know, he says the Bible is his favorite book or um, he actually in, – in a story um, I've been writing, he said the Bible uh, – the art of the deal is a is a is a is a second to the Bible. So he promotes his own book, and then, <laughs> and then says the Bible is his, yeah. is the first book. He can't so bring up he, the Bible he unless it, he mentions his own book too. Yeah, right. I mean, he, he's clearly promoting himself, and and uh, and successfully at the, as far as you know, 
at this point. Um, and I think all he has to do is make a pro forma declaration and people, they really are, are reacting to the anger he's expressing about America always losing, as he puts it, or always getting the, the bad end of every deal, as he puts it. He never explains the, what the deals were, um, <laughs> probably because I'm not sure that his, his audience is, is necessarily going to remember that NAFTA was... Uh, a brainchild of the Reagan and Bush one presidencies that Clinton uh, brought in. I mean, those things go back a long way, and their effects have been disastrous on the economy. And and so people are turning to something they know, religion. And and so the most of the Republican uh, contenders have been these hard right religious folk like Ted Cruz and Huckabee and others. I understand the anger and that people want to uh, go with someone who, you know, they think is a winner because he keeps saying he's a winner. I'm just surprised, I think, that evangelicals would vote for someone who clearly, to me anyway, doesn't have their best interests at heart. I mean, I don't see Donald Trump as a guy who's going to say, yeah, let's ban abortions. Let's, you know, reinstate a gay marriage ban. You know, Ted Cruz talks about doing that sort of stuff all the time. And Donald Trump doesn't. I, I'm very curious why evangelicals would vote for someone, even out of anger, uh, who doesn't seem to have their best interests at heart. That's surprising to me. Yeah, it is to me, too. I mean, but every <laughs> ever since Donald Trump appeared on the political scene this time, I mean, if you remember before then, he he was he was he had the, he was in the birther way of trying to prove Obama wasn't born in the United States, and people sort of dismissed him. And then he didn't he decided not to run last time. And this time, when he when he said he was going to run, people here in Russia were asking me, "Well, does he have a chance?" And I'm saying, "Oh no, Donald Trump doesn't <laughs> have a chance." Well, <laughs> yeah. he, he's proved everybody wrong at every turn, and and it's just astonishing. It really is. It's, I mean, this is this is he's a phenomenon, and I know. I mean, think of Donald Trump as anything. I mean, I've known known about him all my life, pretty much as a, just a flamboyant real estate a real estate mogul, and nothing more. I mean, the guy who was in the news for big buildings and uh, you know crazy statements and beautiful wives and things, and but I never thought of him as anything like a demagogue or anybody who could who could stir crowds up. As much as he does, it just—I I could have named fifty things I thought Donald Trump would be, and that would not have been one of them. Right? Yeah, I think he's surprising everybody. Uh, I have one last question for you. So, your latest book is called "Topless Jihadis." Uh, what is it about that group, Femin? Uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing their name correct. But what is it about their brand of activism that you think is effective or or not effective? And and what is it that draws you to what they do? Well, I, I, as I, as I told you, I've been living in Russia, and Femin is not in Russia, but they were in Ukraine, uh, just to the south. And um, when when they appeared, I, I there was some publicity about their various acts um, down in Kiev, and I thought that was interesting. But then, what really got me excited about the group was that they they explicitly target religion and explicitly target the patriarchy that religion, that in this case Christianity, um, is based on. And so it was really their their attitude towards religion that, that got me interested. And then I, I began to write about them and traveled south, and then they moved, as you probably know, they, um, one of the uh, most prominent Simon leaders sawed down uh, a cross overlooking Kiev's Independence Square, and she was threatened by the president of Ukraine at the time, and she fled to Paris. And that's where the group has has really taken off. Um, and the thing that interests me most is that they're that they are they're explicitly 
drawing the connection between religion and oppression and religion and the oppression of women. Um, and they've also included Islam in this, and so they live under threat. Um, it's been very dangerous for them. Uh, so that's what's interested me. And do you think their uh, form of activ- activism where it's kind of almost a, a shock value where they protest topless and make these claims, do you think that obviously they're getting attention for that, but do you think that's an effective way to uh, create change, that the type of change they want to create? Well, what they're trying to do is get people to pay attention. And uh, they they knew that people would pay attention to, to half-naked women. And, and so they're, they're, they never just go out and, and there's always a message written on their bare bodies. Mm-hmm. And the message is the slogan indicating the message they're trying to give. So that the point is they're trying to, they're trying to point out um, injustices or point out the failures of religion or the evils of religion. And I think they, their, their aim is to start a conversation and they certainly have done that. And you can certainly see that by the, by the fierce reaction from the French, especially the French far right, which is Catholic um, and Islamists in France and elsewhere. Um, so they, I think it's, a, it's effective in starting a conversation and that's what the group is about. It's about starting a conversation. So it's, it's not about um, positing solutions at, at this point, but they, they've done a lot to, to show how deadly serious uh, people of faith take any kind of questioning, especially uh, Muslims and in, in France, especially Catholics. And they've done a good job of that, and that's what they've been trying to do. Well, Jeffrey Taylor, thank you so much for your time, and we'll have links to your articles in the show notes. Uh, keep up the good work. We enjoy reading you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at friendlyatheistpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Hemant Mehta, and I hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.